0: Welcome to the Raft Episode 1. Featuring
1: The Hagen Tree by Kate Donnelly. Performed by Alice Mara. Anchored by Jennifer Lawson. The Words by
0: Beth McCallum. Performed by Kate Bond.
1: Star Tale by LaPierre. Sounds by Pretoria Pinefleet and Sonic Carn The Hanging Tree It came in through the window she'd left open to let the soul out. It clapped fussing behind the curtain and went flapping and shadowing oblique across the bed. And where it passed low by the table, it clipped the ear of the wooden rabbit and sent it knocking and rolling across the floorboards. It made no cry, no song, just crumpled wingbeat sound of fresh laid sheets. The two jumped up with the fright of it, coming in as it did from the hanging tree, from the bright outside to the dank subterrane of the room and breaking the sacred air. And it was a terrible thing with her lying there, but she hadn't moved all the day long and her eyes were shut and her breathing slow, so that it seemed not to bother her at all as it dipped and rose above her the two pressed their backs to the wall and looked one to the other and then to the bed where she lay and back up to the bird watching as it threw itself in baneful arcs at the walls and the cornices and high up against the window panes clouded and wavy with age and they were each thinking of the meaning of it and they were struck to silence until Aunt Vi said you Laura accusing and sent her for the broom. Along the hallway one hand dragging the broom behind, and the other feeling at the rough clouds of old paint where the wallpaper once hung, where the mother had walked a thousand times before, and where one day she had stopped, stood looking at the paper, tracing with one finger its curves and dashes and stippled blue and green, and put her hand to her mouth and said, Oh God, and started picking at it, peeling strips of it from the wall and not stopping until it was all torn down in the hallway littered with paper. When Aunt Vi came, her saying, but there were birds in it, right through the pattern. Birds. And Aunt Vi nodding and going to the cupboard for something to put the rubbish in. There was a small scrap left in a corner by the doorway, high up where the light wouldn't reach. But Laura couldn't see any birds in it, only faces, as she saw faces in all things. Well, said Aunt Vi. Laura reached up and brought the broom close to the bird resting on the window head while her aunt stood back, hands knitted and pressed up at her mouth. A faint breeze from the window, but everything lay so heavy nothing stirred. Nothing but the soft mouse down of the bird's feathers and their shadows elongating across one wall and then just as the brim made contact the bird took off again thrashing at the furniture and sending down clots of felted dust collections of lint and dead skin of spider webs and hair and all other debris from atop the wardrobe and scattered now all around Lord give me strength said Aunt Vi and she took the brim from Laura and leaned on it with her eyes closed for a minute then swept at the mess. The bird settled on top of the wardrobe and it hunched its wings and lurched back and forth like a storybook villain and it let out a thin cry. They stood staring at it and each glanced at the bed and saw that she was still asleep. They'd both seen well enough where the bird had come from. Up where rope, blue and ragged, was still knotted around the bough, tangled too high now to reach. It was nesting with the others, clustered aloft in its branches, birds so myriad the tree blossomed dark with them, and when a sound made them fly up in scattering clumps, leaving the tree gaunt and bare, it didn't fly with the rest, but towards the window. It must have been lured in by the sick sweet animal smell of skin and hair and something else. The silent beat of dying pulsing rings through the air. It was a thing birds could sense. She had seen them. A small garden bird circling the cat dripped carrion of a pigeon, picking over it for feathers to build a nest seagulls scavenging seagulls through manic happy calls, a crow pecking at the entrails of a damp rabbit. All birds knew where to find death and it was a terrible thing that it'd come here. But as the wings beat above and the body in the bed went on sleeping its too deep sleep, she wished the bird would wake the body and she wanted to shake it out of its dreaming and say, look there's a bird in the house, wake up, look, a beautiful bird. It was a surprising thing It was life in this stagnant room, but it was a terrible thing too. You, Laura, it's bad luck. Just open it a crack, I said. Laura could hardly stand the smell of her lying there, like the inside was already beginning to rot, and she held her breath when she went near. Her aunt had brought smells in to cover it, reek of lilies and scented paper sashes you could taste in your mouth, but still the rot smell permeated. It was not the smell of her mother, who smelled always of amber and soap. She was not the mother. The mother was not her, but there was some part of her left inside watching. And as she laboured through her dreams all the months long, entombed in sleep, all the while small parts of her were breaking off and flying free. Pass me that pillowcase, said her aunt. If we can throw it over it, it'll stop moving around and we can lift it outside. She passed her the pillowcase. The bird was too quick, and after a time Aunt Vi bunched up the daisy-headed cotton, all marked grey with dust, and she looked out through the window and across to the tree. That tree, she said, it ought to have been cut down. They'd walked in the shadow of the tree when she was a child, her listening to her mother's stories. Why do they call it the hanging tree, she'd asked. Because in long ago times, some fool boys played at hanging there. They, each of them took turns hanging from the rope to see who could do it longest. What happened? One had the rope secured around his neck and at that same time out of the bushes a hare went limping past. The boys chased it into the woods and they forgot their friend and they never did catch it and when they got back to the tree the boy was dead. The devil was in that hare, and if I ever catch you playing it hanging I'll leather your legs her spine rasped with it. The boy hanging in the tree. The devil. The hare. Three blackbirds were perched high up on the branches, making the dull and sticky buds quiver at their purple margins and their song went weeping and churling high and clear. It ought to have been cut down, Aunt Vi said. The mother's slow hand moved across the bedclothes like the sluggish curl of a river and was still The bird went skittering across the floor and under the bed, and they kneeled low, one on either side, and looked each to the other under the valance and across the dark of the underneath, and the bird's eye glinted in what light had found its way there. "'What kind of bird is it, do you think?' Laura said. "'How should I know? A bird's a bird, and it's bad luck is what it is.' She wanted to say, "'Why is it bad luck? What's wrong with it? And is it because it came from the tree? Or because they bring death?' Her aunt reached out for it, and it flapped away from her high against the bed slats and cowered out of reach, and she sighed long and low. Then she reached under again and grasped and misgrasped at the wooden rabbit, her fingers closing in on themselves like a dying spider, until finally she got a hold on it and brought it out from under the bed. She stood up, and then so did Laura. The foots chipped, said Aunt Vi. She rubbed at it with her thumbnail. Away you out to make a cup of tea now. But the bird? It's me, i will have to deal with that. Just a crack, I said, and she shook her head slowly. Away and make the tea and give your mother and me some peace. She held the wooden rabbit close to her, and when Laura reached the door she said softer, bring something sweet too. God knows we need it. From the kitchen window, darkling shades of late afternoon. The birds circled the tree once and settled in its penciled branches, chorusing. They would gather there after school under the tree and it became not a curse but a place for prophesying. They'd drag a log all rotted through with yellow fungus to the base and take turns climbing on top. When the noose was in place her friend would reach up with the hazel twig and tap three times along the trunk and say you've to ask a question in your head but don't tell it to me. Then Laura would lean forward and wait for the answer. No sound but the rasp of rope fibres drawing against smooth bark while up above the sun-made stars through the leaves. The last time she'd asked the tree a big question. She asked her question silently, slipped her head through the loop of rope and the rope rested bright and blue against her pale neck and she leaned forward away from the tree until it was hard against the skin And when she swayed onto her toes, the rope cut tight. It hurt so that she wanted it to stop, and she reached up to dig the cord loose. But then the white flooded in, and she expanded out with it. And there were faces all around, crowding and spinning through the light. And it was so that there was no beginning and no end, only light, until the rush sounded like the dark of the sea. And she was pushed back on her heels, and the color came in through foggy apparitions. The puce-streaked bracken, the grey-green ferns. Impressions at first, and then were all that remained. "'What did you see?' asked the friend. But she wouldn't tell. They hadn't played the game again. The wind whipped the rope high and it coiled around the branches, and neither would climb up to untangle it. Laura crouched low and tilted her head under the bed. "'I can't see it,' she said. "'I can't see it, can you?' And then she said, oh, there he is. It was quailing by the bedpost, its head turning slowly with each sound and fear agitating its feathers to ceaseless motion. I think he's tired. Isn't there something we can do? Aunt Vi said nothing, just looked into her empty cup like she was scrying for something. Poor thing, said Laura. Couldn't I give him something to eat? She rose and picked up the cake plate Faded lilac with irises and scattered with crumbs. You dear, said Aunt Vi. Do you want him to get a second wind? Poor thing, she said, and she put the plate back down. She stood looking down at her mother. Should I give her the sponge, she asked. And she reached for the bit of honeycomb they'd cut from the sponge in the bathroom and used to dampen her mouth when she wouldn't take any water. Just leave her now, said Aunt Vi. She set her cup down on the dressing table and it clinked against the glass bowl and it sang like a temple bell. The day's last light was filtering into the room, silhouetting the wooden rabbit against the wall and casting branches like witches' fingers across the bed. The two sat on through dusk, shifting in hard-backed chairs, murmuring undertones, passing the time. The bird was still. In the sun's light, the mother was sometimes crescent, sometimes full but in the night she wasn't there at all when the moon appeared bone pale and gibbous they drew the curtains closed for it was said that the devil came down in moonbeams and took away the souls of the dying the night air was damp and cold and Laura parted the heavy drapes and laid her palms on the sash to push the window shut but Aunt Vi rested a hand on her shoulder and said leave it child and she understood then what it meant They waited for the dark, for the shadows to turn things back into themselves. Then Laura picked up the sleeping bird and took it outside.
0: She is a hermit of sorts. There was no one event that caused it that she could pin it on. One day, it had just got too much. She lived on the edge anyway, people said. It was due to her being an artist. She felt things more deeply than others, and she could never learn to let go. She took on all their pain and carried it in her own. Her skin felt flayed by her people, her soul skinned and red. Like a hunter's kill. That feeling became so intense and consuming that it was the trigger, if anything. So she lives in the belly of a whale on the side of a black cliff that rises up from the sea. Her friends are puffins and gulls, terns and the fish eagle. Dolphins sometimes visit the bay. Seals wait for the tides to ebb, worshipping the sun on the rocks below. There is lots to watch here, and no one bothered her, not that her existence was widely known. The rock formations here provided a protecting cave for her, and it was only at certain points of low tide she can access the mainland. To be near the sea was all she wanted these days. The sounds soothed her, allowed her space to think, to quiet her mind. She just lived here. When she had to go to the mainland for supplies, she found it difficult to talk. Her mouth felt shut fast. Remembering words was hard. She was always anxious she'd be asked questions from the people. Questions she couldn't answer. She just wanted to get in, get what she needed, and get back to her home beside the sea. Beside the sea, it was quiet, restful. She could sit at the edge of the cave and draw, fall on the rocks with her line close her eyes and move her hands over the paper and let go. She could just stop everything here. She could count her breath, let the wind play with her hair, swirl wisps around her. On warm days, she could stand still, close her eyes and feel the sun on her skin. And really feel everything. Smell the sweet salt air, listen to the waves, join them with her breath, long and soft, flat. Sharp and shallow, crash. Sometimes she'd lay down on the edge of the cliff and let rain pelt down upon her body until she was soaked and eventually clean. In winters, she would sing and sew, wrapped in soft fur blankets, watching fire. She embroidered things the hairs that sometimes she saw on the beach, playing in the snow, the swallows that heralded the beginning of spring and the close of summer. She made many pictures of the sea, the beach and sky. She used gems, trinkets and glitter she had collected to embellish the wave throst. She loved the morning sun the best, the way it made a calm sea glitter like diamonds on a blanket. And she could never seem to satisfy that need to recreate such beauty on paper. She took vast sheets of paper and swept translucent layers of colour across it. She'd patiently wait as the colours mixed and seeped into themselves. She'd nudge it, holding her breath and releasing it as the colour ran to and fro. she had made piles and piles of glitter, shards of glass from the beach, pieces of metal, shimmering pebbles, pots of glitter, all the colours from the craft shop in the village jewellery bits, real silver and gold, marquisite brooches, small boxes of plastic mirror gems, deep red sequins, pale blue sewing beads, and a little precious pile of real cubic zirconias. She had it all. From her pew at the door to her cavern, she could see the herd that often visited the shore too. She watched them each summer with their foals. Then in the winter, they wouldn't come, but they returned in spring grown up and splendid. They let her walk among them, too. During summer, she would collect as many types of flowers as she could. Poppies and bluebells were easy to find and grew wild, and she watched for the first snowdrops in the spring. To take home just one and try to draw its ethereal form was always a treat. She took a rose here and there from the village gardens, none so much that they would be missed. She tied them in bunches and hung them from the roof inside the cave to dry. She pressed the forget-me-nots in her sketchbook. Every year, their blue would always fade and she'd be sad, but still grateful to have them through the winter. Inside the cave was a marvel. The roof is formed around the fossilised skeleton of a whale. The spine and ribs are rafters of the cavern roof. The lower jawbone is missing, but the head looks out to see from just a little inside the entrance. Inside it is as warm and homely as a house. She keeps it so. It's been five years and her already long hair has never been cut. It is so long she can wrap it around her, sit on it. She has a full length the cave and sits before it, sewing flowers through her hair. Here in her cave she wears long skirts, bright blues, embellished dresses, shocks of material and lace vests. When she goes to land, she wears big boots, heavy jumpers, nothing feminine or bright. The first night she saw him, she was pulled from her cosy reverie as she watched him take off his shoes and walk right into the sea. He stood there for a long while, staring out. For 21 days he did this. She counted and she watched him every time until the sun went fully down and the moon rose up. During the day, she started to make drawings. Drawings of him, small at first across the line where the sea meets the sky. Then one night, he didn't come. And after that, he did not return. For the first time she had come to live here, she felt alone. It was then she had the idea, and she filled her days with a careful and meticulous gluing of the tiny gems to the roof of the whale's mouth, so that when she lay down to sleep in the evening, the gems glittered gloriously above her in the low light. Every evening after a day of concentrated work, she climbed down and waited for him with her feet in the sea. That autumn, he returned. He comes and just sits with her while she works. The roof is two-thirds covered now. She likes that she doesn't have to talk and that he asks her good question. Sometimes he plays his guitar for her. She will hum and sing her own tune to his. Slowly, more and more bits of him begin to inhabit the cave.
1: of everything I see I hear. I am made of purest thought. I am the will of the moon.
0: star Tales by Le Pair.
2: Perched high, wrinkled Why ye, brightly warning all who float. Wisdom told, I must not clip it right. Ridiculous
0: passage, absurd passage, my neck hung
1: low. Some stars do yawn and some stars do string tails. Of great bright. Their shining thoughts blush my blue face now burnt red. Two
0: black rivers. The first, a tail, quivering, studded with light. The
2: younger hugging the tide of the first.
1: Scorpio, Scorpio, I submit to your glory, the hells of humanity only fill a single segment of your fury, if I can, and I do not say I might, and if I can, And I do not say that you agree Ah,
0: mistake I could be
1: To fall free Landing home Happy faces
0: and greenery Where all I love Cannot die And all I want will be honest Oh, Scorpio perched high, pray let me be.
2: The Woods by Bette McCallum. Up in the woods, beyond the house, she was in a death game with the stag. She was shrewd and calculating. He knew she was there, all of his senses directed. It was always a contest. This time she could tell he was more fearful. The forest shivered with it. She trembled herself, but only inside. Her hand was steady and practised. She sent the bullet and the animal fell, a true shot and no lingering death. She could always provide that, at least. Behind her, she could hear her brother. Always the same disturbance, the same little hissing breath and rustling of ferns. She never turned, but instead marched off among the bracken, a distance from the kill, and sat against some stump, her back to the carcass. She could hear him with his little scissors, clipping, clipping. He wittered his odd language and it reached her. Spots, wet, wet, sappy, silk, silk, fuzzy. She knew how long to wait and sat staring up into the birches, gold and silver, quivering against the sky. Gray wing colors against the white bark made her hand reach instinctively for the rifle. But there were only shadows, The woods were tricksters. She sat for many minutes, glowering, resenting all the expectations of her. She sneered the rabbits. She shot the grouse. She plugged the pheasants. She coursed the hare. In another life, she wouldn't be here. She would be swimming rivers. She would be in sleek, testing rivers. That dream kept her going in the harsh round of killing, skinning, gutting, hanging. All so they both be clothed and fed. All so they would both survive. This was the way of it after what happened. There was a great fuss of wood pigeons collapsing down through the leaves. Then the snapping of undergrowth as her brother loped away. Away with his pickings, whatever they were. He was secretive. She waited a moment then, still sour. Went back to trust the deer. When everything changed in their lives, she had concentrated on the practicalities, on saving the house and dodging the officials. Her father had always handled the caring. He had known how to reach Todd. She had never been required to, and their lives were separate now. The outbuilding belonged to him. She never went in. He roamed the hill, a feral child of fourteen yet, always back he came. he came at six to eat the stew, the meat she'd earned by stealth. He jammed the food into his mouth, chewed fast, cowered over his plate. He never looked her in the eye. Sometimes he jabbered stuff juice, juice, chewy, sifty, sifty. Nothing made much sense. He never stayed long enough for anything more to unfold between them. She never tried to stop him leaving. It was getting late and the woods were restive, impatient, wanting rid of her. She pulled the stag corpse onto the tarpaulin. It was unwieldy and its head lolled and shifted about. At times like this, another pair of hands would have helped. Sometimes the isolation grew too much and she'd travel miles to the camp and trade pelts or venison and sit with the loggers and the huntsmen and drink beer Listened to the men's talk of tools, ramps, fish and women. Often they would ask her about young lad Todd, how he was doing, how she coped. She would say they managed away fine, but it was a topic she would not take further. She didn't want to think about it now either. She dragged the beast home, the tarpaulin roped her waist. Then she covered the animal and went in to warm the supper. Todd didn't come. This was the first time in the whole year since. She felt the antagonism rise. She wanted him to have some conscience, to be able to apologise, to give something back. But of course, he wouldn't know how. She considered going to the camp for help, but dreaded asking. For two hours, she paced about and then threw his food away. It was intrusive. She knew but she went into his shed. The place was fragrant with pine cones. His bed was a heap of skins and blankets. The pillow cover had been replaced with their father's checked chart. It still had his smell, juniper and lye. The hut was tidy. In the corner, a homemade brushwood broom, and against the wall, a table of stacked logs and ash planks. She handled some nests and fragments of eggshell. She fingered a strand of tinsel some bird had fancied and woven through its home. Then she saw the badges. They were laid out in a straight line. They were all the same size, about two inches long, but they were all different. Each one was made from clippings, soft fuzzy fans, feather and fur. She recognised pheasant and partridge rabbit, fox, and the white down of stoat. Mounted on each was a small whittled head, a delicate portrait of roe deer, beaver hair, all the creatures she killed. She picked up a stag, its mica eyes accusing her. The badges were beautiful. Where did he get them? He couldn't have made them. She looked closely at the carvings. Each one had a different expression. The creatures had personalities. Did he really make them? There were tools lying around, woodworking items mostly, and to one side a small mound of pungent shavings. What was all this stuff? Where the hell was he? She needed to go back out, take the night tracking gear and search. He hadn't eaten, he couldn't be warm enough. The woods could be dangerous. Her own traps were up there. In the last tilt of light, she left, taking the sleeping pad, the old tent, and matches proofed against the rain. She checked her knife, rifle, rope, and field glasses. She didn't usually use the compass. She'd made her own mental maps of the tracks. The woods at night had a different spirit. The whole place howled. There was no moon. She followed her usual path, swinging the torch low and sideways, picking up the grey bones of tree trunks and the glitter of eyes. His signs were all around, crashed fern, flattened patches, feathers tacked across the blabries like necklaces. None of the evidence was fresh. She couldn't pick up his trail. She climbed the hill, bracing between the larch stumps, sniffing the air, getting musk and the damp stench of fungi. Staying alert to any snap of twig that wasn't her doing. The rain set in after midnight, heavy and relentless. It made searching too difficult, so she pitched the tent and crawled in. Might as well get dry. She didn't know whether he moved at night or not. Sometimes she doubted he could even be her brother. She drifted off, remembering a red thing in a cot beside her mother something that got all the attention as far back as she could recall. In the early morning, to the wail and drone of chainsaws, she secured the tent and moved down closer to the camp, taking only the rifle and field glasses. There was a dull orange glow around the sawmill, a play of sunlight and dancing motes of dust. Sinking down into the moss, she raised the binoculars. A skidder was coming back bumping its load of logs over the ruts. One man was standing on a platform, waving, nodding it forward. It was Bosco, the overseer. The men looked up to him. She had often sat next to him by the fire. He seemed part of the forest himself, like something shaped from red fur. She panned the binoculars across the site, following the operation. The logs had been dumped at the top of the ramp, and a tiger cat rumbled into view, raised its blade and pushed a load into the pond. As the logs hit the surface, there was a fanning out of white water before they glided, knocking gently against each other to set them. The mid-morning whistle sounded and the men stopped, switching off machinery, wiping their brows. She swung the glasses and watched them gather round Bosco. The lad from the tiger cat jumped down from the cab and took off his hard hat. As he reached the group, Bosco slapped him on the back one of the others shook his hand. It was Todd. He looked different. He looked foreign. Some kind of signing was going on, some sort of language. And they were all smiling. Her throat constricted, dried out, bile flared. There was a banging in her temples. It was the only sound in the world, Till behind her the woods breathed out. She reached for the Winchester and looked through the scope, stroking the trigger and sighting on Todd and the men. In each of their caps was a stupid little badge.